In this episode, Ron and I discussed the challenges in becoming your own banker in light of the current business cycle, and we had fun. Thank you for listening. Welcome to the Bank of Life podcast. I'm your host, James Nethery. I'm your co-host, Ryan Griggs. And we're just uh, having fun on a Saturday morning and, uh, and excited to be here, and thank you for listening. Yeah. And, you know... Uh, We'll just see what comes up. I mean, we had a brief conversation, you know, before the lights are turned on and you can see all the detail and the mics are on and you can hear everything. So Mr. Griggs is here. It's been a while, Mr. Griggs. Yeah, it's been a minute. I was in Duke University in North Carolina for a week and, of course, Mother's Day. So, yeah, a lot of, lot of stuff going on. I was having the uh, – myself and a colleague were scanning the uh, – collection of papers from Carl Manger, who's the founder of the Austrian School of Economics at Duke University. His papers are all stored there. And so I've got this idea that over some period of years, we'll have a lot of that translated. So we got to go and get them scanned images. And anyway, was there for a week. That because the Austrians haven't done it in the last 140 years. So somebody's got to do it. If not you, who? <laughs> who? Yeah. it's a worthy effort. And, yeah. you know, Anyway, so that was part of it. Um, and then speaking of outside or other like non-particular IBC-related projects, I've, there's this uh, gentleman who maybe I'll mention by name in the future if things continue to go well, but uh, <laughs> a colleague uh, who works with other agents in the business actually, is an agent himself, but we got to I thought chatting. you said it was non-IBC-related. The, the project I'm going to talk about is, but we did meet through IBC. I. Um, met him first, I think maybe at the 2020 Nelson Nash Institute think tank, but spoke again at the 23 one. Um, and he's by training a, I don't know what you exactly would call it, but he analyzes the energy efficiency of HVAC systems in commercial buildings, Engineer. Right? leakage and all that. And they, they turns out they use a lot of the same statistical techniques as an econometrician would in uh, doing their little economic statistics studies for journals and whatnot. Anyway, we got to chatting. He has this online expertise. I have this interest in the money supply. Uh, Bob Murphy and I have this paper in the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics from maybe it's published last year, 2022, on Austrian business cycle theory and yield curve inversion. Of course, yield curve inversions the difference between the yield on the 10-year and the yield on the three-month treasury bond traded in the secondary market, that difference when inverted, meaning when the yield on the three-month secondary exceeds that on the 10-year and does so for a sufficiently durable amount of time, predicts recession with near perfection since World War II. And even mainstream economists, God bless them, understand this that when you have yield curve inversion <laughs> maybe they look at different yield curves but the 10 3 uh, secondary is like the most well uh, expand on that if we can without throwing you off track you know what's a secondary market and you know what is su the sufficient timeline two and a half months three months four months i mean in the mm -hmm. uh the world of the economist you know secondary market just refers to trading after issue Right, so between financial institutions, uh, whereas the primary would be that's what the treasury is offering the bond at, uh, and it just so happens just happens to be empirically 
the fact that if you compare the 10 year and the three month, the second, the three month secondary, and you look at that curve with the relationship to yield curve inversion, you get a very tight relationship empirically. So the paper that Bob and I did was taking some of what Bob had done on the theory side of things and taking what I saw in, in terms of my interest in the money supply and kind of putting them together was that theoretically from an Austrian perspective, you should be able to look at what goes on in the money supply and in particular, how quickly the level is changing. So basically an acceleration vector. If you look at how, what, what's going on in those terms in the money supply that should precede what goes on in the yield curve. The idea being yeah. that when the fed and the commercial banking system manipulates the money supply, the, the, interest rates on financial assets that are disproportionately affected are those of short duration. So the, the three month, you know, the, the one week, the one day, the overnight, that's where the fed has the most control over relative to long-term yields. And so ordinarily you would expect yield on long dated assets to be higher because you got to lock up your money for longer. So I need to get paid more. Whereas if I'm locking my money up for less time, I'll accept a lower yield because maybe I can just roll it over. Or at least I can go use the money for something else <coughs> after the stated duration. Mm -hmm. And so an ordinary non-inverted yield curve is a positive was where the line is above the positive zero bound because the difference between the yield on the 10 year and the yield on the three month is positive, right? Because the yield on the 10 is higher than the yield on the three. Okay, well, an inverted curve is where that line, that difference line goes negative. Uh, and that's what I'm saying, what mainstream economists have said, what everybody kind of acknowledges, tends to predict recession. The paper Bob and I did presents a, the rationale for why that would be the case. And it's got to do with the revelation of malinvestment, right? When the Fed starts to contract, when the pace of new money growth decreases in acceleration, or when the money supply absolutely contracts, right? Def literal deflation, decrease in the supply of money. This uh, takes away the trough, takes away the source of ongoing business activity for these marginal, hyper-aggressive, interest rate sensitive kind of players, right? Companies and entities that use a lot of debt to fund their failing businesses, right? <laughs> to keep them alive. And so when that pace reverses, mm -hmm. when money supply contracts or when the production of new money at least decreases, uh, the liquidity that these marginal, hyper-aggressive, malinvested, anti-economic players relied upon to survive gets more expensive. And so a major cost of their doing business shoots up and you get the failures and that's what the bust or the correction or the depression or whatever, that's how all that starts. Um, anyway, in well, that whole no, context- I appreciate that. I mean, it's like the, cause I've seen uh, the duration of the inverted curve is anywhere from two and a half to four months. And you know, what are the economists- yes. So in prior corrections, it is typically a period of months. So I did this long write-up on Facebook, which I probably shouldn't do. It should probably be on a blog post, but whatever. I read it. It looks uh, like you were venting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. In 08, see if I can find it. Here we go. 
So prior to the 08 collapse, there was a yield curve inversion that lasted from August of 06 to April of 07. And the recession occurred eight months after that inversion. So it, from August to 06, so August to September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April. So eight months of inversion. Then came the, in December of that, fo- of that year, eight months following the recession. And, that, and that's a formal recession. Like it's the National Bureau of Economic Research says uh, falling employment, so rising unemployment, two quarters of negative GDP growth formal recession and then people argue well we're already in recession because all the reporting from nber is lagged i mean you know they look back and say oh really the recession started back then and anyway so this is there's there's uh, a degree of obfuscation of you know it's not quite clear when you start using all these government statistics but uh (laughs) they're not manipulating but to your point yeah like you can't have okay so 2019 is a great example in 2019 in may of that year and i was kind of watching this in real time there was yield curve inversion it lasted for a few weeks Mm -hmm. and then of course 2020 and all the fun uh in the form of rona and the hysterical orgy of money printing that came after immediately followed and we had there was like a formal nbr flash recession but of basically no consequence right it was kind of over my my point is that yield curve inversion can predict recession but when you get into questions of duration and how long is it going to last and how long is it going to take for a recession to happen after yield curve inversion you can't get real precise because there's all these other confounding influences policy can both like government, federal government policy and then Federal Reserve monetary policy can postpone, elongate. Like in the 1920-21 recession, that recession lasted less than a year, about nine months, Wonder because why. Hoover at the time uh, had a pretty laissez-faire attitude in the aftermath compared to someone like an FDR who launched all of these various programs to accentuate and stifle and prohibit the market from adjusting from allowing prices to to adjust and the the system to i hate to use the word equilibrate because i can't stand general equilibrium stuff but um (laughs) for 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 resources to be priced more in tune with reality put it that way the market so uh 20 and 21 laissez-faire the hands-off government lack of intervention didn't happen so it recovered quickly turned mm-hmm. into the roaring 20s mm-hmm. oh what a model okay I, I don't want to sidetrack you i just wanted to bring clarity that there's you know for for myself right and, yeah so all, all this is going on in the background right i had this paper with bob i'm interested in the idea of the money supply and its relation theoretically to yield curve and how you can kind of get a sense of what's going on in a more macroeconomic kind of framework <laughs> uh, in a theoretically reasonable fashion. Okay. So the Federal Reserve has this tool called Fed Fred, F-R-E-D, uh, which is a basically a data tool published by the St. Louis Federal Reserve Bank. And you can go and create your own charts and utilizing some of the various money supply statistics that the Federal Reserve publishes. And then you can manipulate those various money supply statistics. You can 
put in formulas, take out certain elements, add other elements back in. And even though that's still not perfect because the the Federal Reserve changes what they call certain money supply series. They stop publishing some, they, they start publishing new ones, and then they change the compositions of the ones that they do publish. So it's not perfectly crisp. Like it's not a, if you wanted to go get the true money supply looking at Fed Fred, you could get a proxy of it, but you're not going to get one that would totally satisfy someone theoretically if you really insisted on as perfect as possible. But you can get close. So I've built mine there uh and then like we do in the paper i tell the system okay take the year-on-year change so what was the change in the level of the true money supply in say february compared to what it was in february of last year take the difference multiply by 100 there's your percentage rate gives you an idea of the this acceleration vector i'm talking about how quickly is the level changing uh and then map that and you get this real nice fit and there's a sort of a just passing glance of this kind of thing in that quarterly journal of Austrian economics paper that Bob and I did. So I pulled up my account at FedFred to look at this because I'm going to build with this other gentleman, Chris, a better money supply aggregator where you where it'll go grab all of this data that's publicly available, curate it, into a theoretically useful form, meaning address these problems with the release of data and the composition and try to get as best as possible a picture on like a dashboard that you can go and tell it what you want, tell you how you want to look at it. Basically a data tool, mm-hmm. uh, which is ironic for someone like me who's so critical of the use of data. But uh, <laughs> so we're doing all that. We have this meeting. So I go look at what's going on on my little proxy at the Fed Fred. Okay. Thanks all that was the, the background. Pre- all that was the preamble. So <laughs> the result is that the so the yield curve is as severely inverted as it's been since 1981. Over 40 years. The rate of money supply deceleration, the problem at the Fed again, the Fed when you put these data supply stuff money supply data on the fed programs together if one constituent element is missing from the series then it just stops showing the line so So if you build this tool though you can get past those durations problems like that yeah yeah absolutely yeah but because i'm using this limited system now like my money supply metric will only go back to about 1990 and i think it's because the fed doesn't publish traveler's checks prior to 1990 but anyway the for as long as we have data that could be called true money supply data on the federal reserve platform this is the most severely contractionary environment on record going back over 30 years and there are some people like daniel Martino booth will say the money supply is contracting at land i think if you look at m2 you can actually look at this that money supply is contracting as severely if not more than it did like in 1929 28 so it's right before the great depression the point is that it's a really severe (laughs) like the money supply is contracting and people online will argue about whether this new bank term fund program btfp that the fed launched in the wake of the collapse of silicon valley Mm -hmm. and silvergate and svb 
that you know whether that's QE or not. And then people, there's always this like there's just avalanche of speculation about in the next FOMC meeting, will Jay Powell, you know, increase the rate? Will he decrease the rate? Will he leave it? Both of these things are red are uh, distractions. I think like fundamentally the money supply is going to continue to contract regardless of what Powell does with the rate because he's allowing 95 billion in total, 60 billion in, is it billion or million? Hold on. It's a billion. Billion. Uh, 60 billion in treasury holdings to roll off the balance sheet, 35 billion in mortgage-backed securities to roll off the balance sheet, which means they're sucking in $95 billion a month because they're not rolling those debts over. This is contractionary. That's going on regardless of what they're doing with the rate setting, targeting, and all that. So my point is that the there's, to me, to my mind, there's no reason to suspect that the contraction won't continue, which to me means that this inversion will persist, the yield curve inversion will persist for longer. And while we can't draw like one-for-one relations between duration of yield curve inversion and recession i think just theoretically it seems to make sense that the longer we have inversion the longer that the money supply is contracting that the more severe potentially the longer lasting the recession will be right like if you take more and more credit away from the this economy of ghost companies that operate on artificially cheap debt if you restrict their source of funding ever more well that's going to put ever more pressure on those entities and potentially even affect otherwise solvent legitimate entities that may occasionally require outside funding or whatever right like it's going to be a significant squeeze yeah and that's what i see coming i don't know that i don't think you could look at the data and be like can come to any other conclusion, right? <laughs> um, so all that's in the background. And whether my clients, our clients, people who watch the show track with me on everything I just said or not, you know, they'll watch stuff on YouTube. They'll see stuff on CNBC. They'll, maybe they pay attention to some degree at what's going on at the Fed. Uh, and there's a concern about the, viability of whatever they've accumulated, whatever particular individual people have accumulated in the stock market. And at the same time, we're in an environment where the Fed has raised interest rates. Uh, Of course, that led to the liquidation of some of these banks that we've mentioned before. Uh, But come to find out, there are, well, not come to find out, we know, but life insurance companies offer the what are called premium deposit funds which we don't talk about hardly we don't ever <clears throat> i've um, had two conversations this week with clients strictly about the pdf yeah so we should we should go into what that is but there's essentially an interest bearing account at life insurance companies that pay a guaranteed rate of interest and that can serve as a source of premium on new policies. So it, it raises this whole, and I'm going through this now, all of this is to say, I'm going through this now with several different clients. One sold a business, it's got a bunch of money, needs somewhere to put it. Another, a couple like this, uh, 
one is in the allowable window for distribution time. So between 59 and a half and 72. Can in take, a qualified plan. In a qualified plan. <clears throat> Another who is still too young to take distributions without the penalty, the 10% penalty, both of whom see the, to some degree, see what I'm talking about with the economic picture, are simultaneously becoming disillusioned with that whole paradigm of, of seed control over capital to Wall Street, right? They, they see the contrast with infinite banking. They see what can be done to some degree, again, looking at the illustrations and becoming your own banker, thinking through the benefit of owning and controlling the banking function and are looking at their accumulated financial value in the context of this being on the cusp of a major correction and saying, could some of that, all of it maybe, be used as a source of premium to get these policies off the ground? And that's opened up a whole... I mean, it's always been there and you know, I've had these conversations before things got this precarious with other clients, but it opens up this whole new set of considerations, this whole other sort of chain of advisory discussion. So I'm gonna stop talking now. My question to you <laughs> is what, what do your conversations look like, generally speaking with clients when there is significant accumulated financial value in the stock market. Maybe it's in tax qualified funds. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's a combination of the two. Maybe the person's younger than 59 and a half. Maybe they're older. But they, they're becoming disillusioned with the whole conventional paradigm. They've done what they've been told by the whole advisory community, by the educational establishment, by Wall Street, CFP, all the people who ought to know better to fork over their money to these investment funds and they're they're looking to undo it to some degree. Maybe they're going to transition. Maybe they're going to do it all at once. Maybe they're going to get mad and quit. What do those conversations look like? Like, are there, what challenges come up? Um, you know, how do people feel about it? Is it, are they excited? Is it like, oh, uh, is it uh, sad? Is it, I mean, does, it, does it make them mad? Is it like, how does that go? And, and does it work? Like, do people, do people get it? Do people see, cause I'm asked a lot and I'm going on about this cause I see you taking notes. So I don't want to interrupt you, but no, uh, I can, I can write and listen to, I hadn't missed a okay, single perfect. word you said. Perfect. You know, cause I tell people, people will ask me what to do with their investment funds. And I'm like, mm, I'm not securities licensed. I'm not, I'm not giving investment advice. I'm not telling you to do anything. I have economics degrees. I can talk about. And I'm going to, there's the first amendment. I'm like, I'm going to talk about <laughs> what I think about you, the market. You did a pretty good job on the uh, economics lessons. Yeah. Lesson. But, I, but I tell people, you know, you need to go talk to your security, you know, the person with the right government permission slip. Go do that. <laughs> you know, go talk to an accountant. If you yeah. don't have an accountant, I can refer you to one. Go get an, a, a sort of legitimate expectation of what this is going to cost if you're going to do this. Because there's going to be cost. And that's part of what I want to get at mm -hmm. is that, it's not like drag and drop. You're not going to take invested funds and put it over into life insurance and get parity day one. Like that's not. So part of this too is the contrast with what we're doing in IBC, which is not an investment program on the one hand with 
the tax qualified plan and stock market investment world on the other hand, which is investing. Like it's almost like there's this transition, potential transition from the investment first mindset of whatever savings you manage to scrape away, give it over to the control of Wall Street on the one hand, right? This investment centric mindset on the one hand with getting into the banking business, quote unquote banking, banking as Nelson understood it, getting into this capital centric con securing control over financial value first before giving it away right there's this transition period from the one paradigm to the other and it's not frictionless like there's going to be costs involved so anyway how do those conversations look to you you know over the last 32 years i've had a lot of conversations about qualified plans and investments I'm an investment advisor representative, and none of what I say today constitutes investment advice. You need to seek the appropriate professional if you need guidance, whether they be an attorney, whether they be an investment advisor, or who, whatever other consultant that you deem necessary to make your decisions. Whomever you need to consult with before you make any decision financially, you need to do that. I only give investment investment advice to my clients, okay? And so I have the ability, the proper government permission slips that I want to be able to perform in my profession within my experience and my knowledge. I do not practice outside of my abilities. But I know the competent professionals that practice in those areas outside of my experience in legal uh, requirements. So there are licenses out there that I'm not going to go get. Mm -hmm. I've had more than I have now, and I've let them go. Um, but I'm appropriately licensed for my practice. Okay. And then there's some disclosures elsewhere that nothing that is expressed or discussed or debated, talked about on this episode, every episode on this channel, on this, in this podcast is meant to, it should not be construed as investment advice. Okay. Um, and so when I first started my career, you know, I believed in the Keo plan, right? The 401k, which that came out in the eighties. Um, and it's had different variations, you know, since, and so when I started my career, Ryan, um, you know, I believed in buy term and invest the difference. And if you're going to invest, you might as well get a tax deduction to invest, right? And then it, I believed it. We were all trained in the financial world to, you know, 65 is the age, quote unquote, of retirement. And if you saved at least 10%, quote unquote, and I use the word save because that's the way it was presented. Not true. An investment is not a savings, mm. okay? But we were trained that if someone would save 10%, get a tax deduction today and put it in the market because the market always goes up, i.e. a qualified plan, that by the time you're 65, you'll be a millionaire. I fully believed it. I sold term insurance and then front end load mutual funds that's how long ago that was and the fee for the front end load was eight and a half percent okay now they have a shared b shares and all that and there's 
no load, low load, small upfront, high trail fees, high management fees. There's all kinds of variations out there now that, you know, is outside of the scope of this. My current answer to your beautiful question. Um, And then personally, I discovered a few things. Number one, under that construct, under that construct concept by term and invest the difference you're going to be a millionaire you won't need the insurance you'll be self-insured quote unquote which just means no insurance when you self-insure <laughs> um, and because you'll have this great big portfolio that compounded actually over seven years you know annual rate of return and then you have all those as nelson would say mountain graph a mountain wave of lies those graphs that show a little today over a long time turns into billions and or millions um so i've had a lot of these conversations over the year i have qualified plans you know i personally do not put money into qualified plans um but i have them so and I own precious metals and real estate so i'm not going to be in a position i don't want to be in the position where i'm having a conversation with a client prospective client where um, I haven't done what they're doing, mm. right? Now, that doesn't mean I do everything. I don't buy options and all that. Anyway, um, it's a very difficult conversation because if you're under 59 and a half currently and you withdraw money from a qualified plan, you're going to pay the 10% penalty and you're going to pay ordinary income taxes. Well, you think about that. The, the government, Uncle Guido, is not going to let you grow money tax-deferred and then turn it into tax-free. You're going to be taxed. The Whomever withdraws that money will be taxed in their current tax bracket at the time that they withdrew it. So in the year of receipt, it's taxed as ordinary income. So um, – <clears throat> the RMD, the required minimum distribution, which you could take, you you must take, not can, you must, you're required to take a minimum distribution from qualified plans. Well, for years, it was seven, age 72, right? And then it went to 72 and a half. It's currently 70, 72 and a half. There's legislation. There's always legislation, though, that it's going to maybe move it to 75. At age 75, you got to do the RMD. Um but it's you're not avoiding the taxes there. You can avoid the penalty if you withdraw prior to 59 and a half. But then with the 401k, you can't withdraw if you're at work at that employer under 59 and a half. That would be considered a, you know, a in-service distribution. And, you know, Barry Dock and I, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, recorded an episode and we talked about um, one of the things that we talked about is how the custodians now are, are holding on to the money, right? So mm. if you want to make a withdrawal or you want to do a transfer out of a 401k and, and away from the firm that it's held at, mm-hmm. you know, they they make it very difficult. You know, everything has to be on a recorded line. I'm all for that. And then the forms have to be correct and and it's seems like every excuse in the book is what they use to hold on to the money longer. You know, it got to a point in the last couple of years, there's so much money moving away from qualified plans. The custodians are saying, well, look, we can just move part of it to cash. Never previously to the last two years have I ever heard a custodian say, oh, you don't have to take all the money. You can leave some into cash and we'll pay a high interest rate on Mm. this. Their quote unquote high interest rate. You know, so they have implemented tact. There has always been tactics at 
the custodians to prevent, slow down the withdrawal, right? They're just getting creative Mm -hmm. and they're becoming more and more owners, more hoops for the consumer to jump through. You know, they act like it's their money. The participant is an idiot if they want to do anything different and, oh, you didn't sign this or you didn't sign that. Oh, it's not in our system. You know, so the paperwork must be in good order, quote unquote. And then they have seven trade days to liquidate and to execute. Mm. They jump smooth over that. And I'm sure they've documented somewhere in their notes of why they could jump smooth over, over the seven days. Okay, so we all know the penalties, but there's a lot of uh, beyond the math. You know, of course, there's math in all of these financial decisions, but then there's human nature and human action, right? You can't leave that out of the equation. And if I go back to the buy term and invest the difference when I started years ago, you'd be a millionaire at age 65. When I discovered that the market didn't always go up and people outlived their need for a death benefit, you know, that was my first, you know, realization that what I believed and what I was doing and was encouraging my prospective clients to do might not be right. Although I'm doing everything that I was trained to do and I'm in the narrative, the current narrative at that time, it's like everybody's doing this. So um, my first realization, like I said, the market didn't always go up. People didn't outlive outlive the need for um, the death benefit. And quite often, most people, I don't want to say most, I've seen quite often people didn't do the investment component to the buy term and invest the difference, right? And I'm not, I mean, I'm answering your question, I assure you. But the mental gymnastics, number one, to go against the grain, to even consider taking money out of the market, right? You're young. It'll recover in a down market. Um, Well, that sounds really good until it's your money, And it went down, for example, in 2000, the markets go down, everybody loses a lot of money. I know there's expert investment people out there that invest your own money and you outperformed all of the hedge funds. I get it. I'm not talking to you, right? Because I don't believe you anyway. (laughs) So, but you're felt, you're made to feel like you're an idiot doing something other than what everybody else is doing and what the financial guru is telling you to do and what the custodian is. And it's all on recorded lines when you're moving money out, right? Mm. Um, I mean, they almost insult your intelligence. They make you feel bad. They make you second guess your decision because if they can change your mind, then they can maintain the management and enjoy the fees of your money. Right. Right. Okay. So, I'm just saying you have that human action component, make you feel bad, but then you go through the math. Okay, well, if you're 58, maybe it doesn't make sense to move money out of a qualified plan and endure that penalty. Maybe it does. It depends on what you believe, what you understand, and your personal um, position or situation at that time. And everybody's situation is different. Well, that's true. And you know, it is right. You're very unique. I'm unique. You're unique. Now, if we're all in different situations, why should we all be doing the same thing when it comes to anything? Mm -hmm. 
you know, IE putting 10% or whatever the match is up to the match into a qualified plan. I mean, think that through. Mm-hmm. Why should we all be doing the same thing? Why should we be doing what everybody else is doing if we're different? Right. And then, of course, we're different. So your income, your expenses, your ability to contribute at whatever level you're allowed to contribute is different from your neighbors. Right. The duration of, of your life and of your financial experience is different. Somebody that is 30 has obviously a longer duration than somebody at 59. But we all want the same things, right? So um, we all want to build capital. We all want to be wealthy. We all want to have a return of our money and a return on our money when we when we invest. I get that. Well, how long are you going to be retired? I don't know, and you don't know either. So I'm just saying, you know, we've talked about all of these things before, but they all matter answering your question, mm-hmm. right? You're you're trained uh, either directly or subconsciously. The narrative is for you, the consumer, to go to the financial advisor, whomever they have. Then you get into all of these designations. This one's better than that. That one's better than this. They're more qualified. They're fee only. They're fee only and commission or they're commission only. Um, There's that narrative in the financial world that one is better than the other. Right. And so here the consumer is like, hmm. Okay, well, well, what do I do? And I don't want to do what everybody else is doing. You experience a, like I was, said, the market went down in 2000, you know, to about 2003. Everybody lost a lot of money from 2003 to 2007 and eight. Everybody made money, right? And so the advisor is always saying, hey, look at me. Look at what I've done for you. And when the market goes down, they say, well, what, you can't blame me. It was a market. <laughs> you know, you take all the credit when it's good and then, you know, none of the responsibility when it's down. Um, I mean, this is a message that, that we're all surrounded in. right? So, number one, just going against the grain. You want to do something different. You're made to feel less than whether intelligently, you don't have enough money, whatever the case may be. You're doing something different you're not doing you're not in compliance with everybody else and what the narrative is that's a stroke that's a friction right Mm -hmm. okay well if you watch your your values go down and then they recover maybe you got a little ahead from 2000 to 2007 and then there's another correction and then you were worth what you were worth in those particular accounts in the market um, about what you were worth in 2000 so uh what was that rate of return it was zero and then you had the time value of money you're behind oh okay and then inflation's going on you know all these wars that the empire has to do you know shutting down the supply chain and all of these things that you're told to think about are the actual causes of these market boom bust cycles whenever uh no no and then like the fed and even the uh, labor uh you know the bureau of labor statistics they change the components to calculate inflation they're changing these things you can't even you have to build your own system (laughs) right to have the duration over uh uh, are longer than the narrative that's being spoke of, right? <clears throat> so then, you know, the market goes up. Then, yeah, how many corrections do you go through before you feel like you're being manipulated? I'm telling you, yeah, I completely agree. It's all friction. There is the math, though, right? I'm going to lose 10% if I withdraw. Okay. 
you're not going to avoid the taxes. So you tell me what the tax bracket is going to be whenever you hit this age of 59 and a half or 75 or 72 and a half. I don't know. And you don't either. Hell, they don't know. But their goal is to get it up. And I I don't care if the rates go down. The volume that you're going to pay in taxes is going up. Prove me wrong. Now, and I'm not, you know, there's um, all the different people that listen that actually exist that don't listen. Their situation is different. Maybe you've got a guy $50,000 in a qualified plan. Well, the same solution for him is not going to be the same solution for somebody who's 60 or 30 that has a million dollars in a qualified plan. So their situation matters, right? But the friction exists. Number one, it's in their thinking. And I think as a consumer, as a, as a client, prospective client, what your experience has been is real embrace it you know embrace your experience embrace your intelligence embrace what you feel that gut feeling that your wife has those are valid indicators of what you should do my opinion my experience right um so through the years as people have lost money gained money lost money and they look at what they've contributed their contributions which rarely happens Right. So you have a starting point. The values were this. I contributed this. The, the employer may have contributed some. You have the fees and expenses. And what do you have now? And then just back those out. Back those cash flows in. Employer contribution. Take those out. Take your contributions out. And now see what the market value was from point A to point B. And you'll be uh, maybe you'll be disappointed. Maybe you won't. Maybe you're the one that picked all the right investment choices and, you know, you made a home run. Maybe you were in the time period of the 80s or through the 90s when the markets, well, the markets are always manipulated. But when there's a bull market, um, was it because your money was in a qualified plan? Was it because your employer got a match? You know, it's like, mm, no. Okay. I mean, does that help answer some of your questions? Absolutely. I'm not finished, yeah. though. I'm just saying. I want to make sure that we're tracking. Yeah. It's like the uh, conversation when it when someone realizes what I have done and have been doing and what everybody else is doing. Maybe my brother-in-law is an expert. Maybe I'm a, you know, a, 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 my, my hobby is the markets or whatever it is. Whenever anyone comes to the realization, what I have been doing is not what I expected. The results don't line up, and then I'm going against the grain, and, and they're causing all that conflict, friction within my own mind, maybe within my own household. If we we can all do the math, is my point here. We look at the math, all right, and then from experience and observation, personally, what you've done, and if you're if you suspect that. You might have been manipulated or you just made some bad decisions. You know, um, Ori Hample was here the other day and we he, he talked about making decisions based on emotion, um, which I completely agree with. You should never do that. But once you can see that the decision that, that you have made in the past, the decisions that you have made when it comes to the qualified plans in this conversation specifically, and you determine within yourself 
that there may be a better way or this way is not good enough, then you need to investigate what the alternatives may be. What choices do you have? What can you do? And what will it cost you mathematically, financially to do that, to make the change? And then what is the result over time? Right. And knowing that the future is unknown, um, then and it kind of speaks to, to Nelson. Whenever you understand what's going on, you'll know what to do. So sometimes it's better to do nothing and mm. figure out what's going on. But then when you engage with people in your discovery of what your choices may be and what alternatives there are, what your plan document says you can do, what the internal revenue says you can do or can't do without a cost here or there, and you go through all that and you discover that there may be something better to do, then it matters who you're speaking to, mm. right? And who you're getting advice from or who you're having these conversations with. It's... Um, I, I, Appreciate greatly what you said. You don't give investment advice because you don't have the proper government slip. Perfect. Um, I believe people need consultants. They need advisors, whether they're legal, medical, financial, whatever they are. Um, you know, it's kind of go back to Ori Hample. You know, I think he said a wise person learns. Uh, a smart person learns from his own mistakes. A wise person learns from the mistakes of others. Mm-hmm. Um which I like that. <clears throat> okay. So the conversations that I've had, sur- that surrounds or is part of every conversation I have. Let's work through the math. What can you do? What can't you do? What are the consequences if you do this? The known consequences. There are always the unintended consequences that you must you know, consider the best you can before you make something, before you make a decision like that. Um, now, every situation is different. I get it. If I'm a 30-year-old individual, and I'm not, but I have been, and I'm going to contribute to a qualified plan or an investment program of any kind, and um, you know, I bought into the idea that I can take losses, you know, I'm in it for the long term, and um, but then I'm not comfortable because I keep losing money, or I do the math, and it's like, wait a minute, this account has actually lost money. It's only gone up in value. This number's bigger here right now compared to the number when I started because of my contributions, <laughs> because of the employer match. You know, that's gen- then just going to solidify that uh, maybe, uh, maybe I don't like this. Right? And then I have to deal with all those consequences going against the narrative, being made to feel less than intelligent. Mm-hmm. Right, um, So you got to work through all that. And then when you work through all the math, um, and whenever – so if I'm 30 and I don't want to do that, all of the things that I am going to finance for the rest of my life – and I don't really care how old you are. You're just going to finance more things, you know – you're probably going to finance more things if you're 30 um, as you are at 60. Um, but it doesn't mean you're not going to finance things at 60. Right? So what I could finance at 30 was not much. What I could finance at 60 is there's a world of difference. Might not be the same things, but the, the magnitude of volume of what I finance today compared to what I could finance at 30 is just no comparison mm-hmm. right rightly so okay um so i work through all that stuff i'm talking to people that i like and trust that are that are able and capable and and you've got to vet them i'll promise you uh, my clients vet me before they ever call i don't know how many times i've had 
yeah, Secret Service, FBI. They tell me, oh, James, we've already looked you up and this and this and this. And I'm like, oh, okay, thanks. You know, perfect. You did that for you, not for me, right? Because I don't care what Uncle Greedo thinks about me. Anyway, um, then you, you have the narrative of the financial advisors. Everybody's doing this, and maybe they're expert in that. Maybe they're expert in getting people to put money into qualified plans. I don't know. But if you look at banking, when you bring in the banking function of your life, the human action, it's a whole new world. Mm -hmm. Because even the last time uh, we we spoke, I think it was uh, what the Finfluencers, mm -hmm. you brought a list of 25 most popular personal finance 50. books. Yeah. 50? Well, look at me being conservative again, right? And so we... You know, we talked, we didn't talk about all 50 of them, but there were some well known household name books and authors mm -hmm. on that list. And not a single one of them ever <laughs> discussed banking. Not a single one. Okay. So now, if you, if you are uncomfortable, you're searching, you're discovering, you're not okay where you're at, you want to do something different. And if you land on this idea of becoming your own banker, controlling the banking function, becoming your own banker, from the source, R. Nelson Nash, and then, and that's a whole nother paradigm shift in thinking. 180 degrees, the exact opposite of what you're taught to do with money. It, it is counterintuitive. Well, of course it is. You've never been exposed to the idea that you can control the banking function. Then it's like, mm-hmm, I got to, I got to, okay, that's a paradigm shift, and I got to go through the math of that, and now I got to figure out who of these 10,000 people that can mention R. Nelson Nash's name and string IBC together and do all the clickbaiting, I know. Uh, all the marketing, you know, I love it. Just type in banking with life and see all of the ads that come up above that. <laughs> you know, it's like when I search for something on Google, if there's a sponsored ad on top, I'm going right past them because mm -hmm. they're just pulling on someone else's coattails. Yeah. I mean, it's, but it, it's obviously profitable for them and successful for them. It is because I deal with the aftermath dang near <laughs> weekly, right? I did this, but then I listened to you, and now I'm not sure if I did what I did was correct. Um, and then I had a lovely conversation with a, a client this week, and you know, and her and her husband, you know, she said, you know, because they discovered the infinite banking concept a few years ago, their advisor came up missing and they were orphaned. Oh, did I jump over that experience that the average person has when they're active in the financial world as a consumer? How many advisors do you go through? How many advisors? Here, let's put this plan together. And then they're gone because selling securities wasn't as profitable as they thought. Maybe they went into real estate and selling mortgages because interest rates are so low or lines of credit or HELOCs or whatever it is they're doing. Oh my gosh, yeah. She said, James, uh, and when she, when they became a client, we didn't 1035 exchange their policies. You know, we just made some minor adjustments. Here's where you're at, and this is what you should do with these, why you should do that, why you shouldn't do this, but you ultimately do what you want. The short of it is they kept their policies, right, and they're, we've made minor adjustments. But she said, James, I know we made a mistake, right? Um but you, as a, as a consumer, you know, we don't know who to trust. 
we get all of this information. We don't even know what's noise or not noise, as you phrase it. You know, she's speaking to me. Um, so we felt like we had to do something. So they did all the research that they could do, and then they started. And they weren't harmed, right? Um, and I'll just say about 90% of my experience and practice over the years has been correcting. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not saying someone else's work, yeah. but just correcting. Um, and rightly so. Everybody that's knocking it out of the park and completely happy with whatever it is they're doing are probably not going to call me, right? Because they're perfectly happy. So I want to do, I do want to point out that not knowing what to do, I get it, but you, you should surround yourself with people that you, that are competent, that you like and you trust and, and learn from their experience and their expertise, right? That can help inform you on your decisions. But that is not in lieu of or in place of or take precedence over what you understand is going on in your life, in your duration, your timeline, what what you and your family are actually doing. Don't jump over this, this self-realization that I might have made a mistake, you know, or maybe what I'm doing, I could do better. Or my wife is just completely not on board with any of it because she has a weird feeling, whatever, you know. Um, but when you're confronted with the idea, you're exposed to the idea that you can control the banking function and what that could actually mean over your lifetime is just another flood of information to get there but when you see that and you can compare practicing the infinite banking concept correctly properly structured policies a competent advisor and agent and you can compare that and do compare that with whatever it is you're doing then it's like okay how do we do that how do we move from here to there fully informed fully aware of the consequences of your actions and completely understanding what's going on behind the numbers on a life insurance illustration i can't uh, say it enough over and over the game in the life insurance industry is i'll build an illustration that looks better than the illustration that you're looking at Right. Without any knowledge of what is going on behind those numbers, it's not good, but it works. So they keep doing it just like the people that, you know, tag on banking with life, banking with life. You got three ads up there, none of whom I would allow my family to work with. Oof. Yeah. Well, we're an hour into it. They don't listen anyway. <laughs> right. OK. So I'm not happy where I'm at. I can do the math. I can understand uh, that I'm going against the grain. I understand the friction that I'm going to go through. And maybe you go through some of that. And some of that's a, a leap of faith in the beginning, too. Just like when you first started buying mutual funds, I remember 30 years ago, just to explain what a mutual fund is and how it works, right? Do you know? Do you know the 100%, 150% turnover rate within a portfolio and what that means to you? Who has thoroughly explained ETFs or mutual funds to the consumer? But they buy that hook, line, and sinker. Then when it comes to a life insurance illustration, now we're hypercritical, right? Because it's <laughs> life insurance. And it's like you, you've got to break down exactly the component of a life insurance. I'm not really talking to the consumer. I'm talking to the quasi-expert life insurance agent or the termite guy who sells term and buys it. You know, um, it's kind of apples and oranges. You know, you're 
encouraged just to accept this investment program that everybody else is doing. Don't overanalyze or, you know, you don't have to know how a mutual fund works, you know, completely. It's just, a, you know, a portfolio properly diversified, you know, mm. uh, portfolio of equities, right? And you've got the famous fund manager that's got the yeah. great track record. Okay. Then you go to the life insurance. You don't have to be a life insurance expert to understand what's going on behind those numbers. Mm-hmm. All right. So it appears complicated, right? But it's really not. And if you're working with somebody who is competent, has experience, and maybe does what they're encouraging you to do, hmm. I can't I can't stand it when a life insurance agent says, Oh, you should pay a hundred thousand dollars in premium and you don't even own term. See the conflict? Okay. Um, for for me, get you know my experience is so different just because I'm slightly younger, <laughs> uh, and with the my the economic background, a little bit taller, a little bit, and I'm kind of an extremist in a lot of I'm just sort of radical in thought. You know, it's like if you're gonna in for a what's the saying in for a penny in for a dollar. I mean, you go all the way, give an inch, take a mile, kind of deal. Um, I admit that it's frustrating for me in those conversations where I can sense that the terminology and the concepts that were built up and bolstered and encouraged in that former investment-oriented tax-qualified mindset, are that's the language that people have as a default to engage with financial topics. And then they, they try to apply that to IBC, you know, a conversation this week. Well, we need we don't want to put all of our money with one company. You don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. We need to diversify because yeah. I'm worried about demutualization, mm. even though these companies have paid dividends for a hundred consecutive years, and even though we select the most financially viable ones, and to diversify means to spread money into less financially viable companies. Yeah. It's like we're defeating the purpose that you set out to achieve. But they the diversification uh the same as interest rates is rate of return. Yeah. You know, it's that same language. It's the context of which they have, they're coming from. what they grew up in. Yeah, yeah. It's what, that's what's in the financial world. Yeah. And it's difficult for me because I didn't grow up in that world. I got you. You know? Um, I worked through college, waiting tables and stuff, but you don't take your tip money and throw it in the 401k. All right? (laughs) The cash? Yeah. You you save the cash and you go out and... You know, it, it's a maybe there's some saving. I had a, a, my first policy I got after I met Nelson in 2016, small policy, but wrong company. I didn't come up in a corporate employment kind of environment where I, the idea of the free money thing, I mean, my inherent skepticism grew up into this rational criticism where, and it, irritates people sometimes and i know and i don't care about you know the definition of words because i i'll have another one of these popular slogans these little myths these little lies is well the employer matches free money oh yeah right and i go into that with some people i'm like yeah no free means costless it's not costless because there's the business cycle and you can't get to the money because there's a penalty and taxes so it's not free and it's also not money because money is the general medium of exchange it's what you can go use to buy stuff and you can't use it i mean that's so it's not free it's not money it's something else but it's not that 
Like if we just look at the definition of words, um, and you can even tell, like in how, like that, it, it bothers me. Yeah. It really irritates, and it, and so to my mind, I kind of turn it around. It's like, what, to what extent would you have to manipulate, and and, and uh, what sort of quantitative result would you need to see in some investment perspective analysis to justify, to rationalize all that you give up? To go participate in that conventional scheme, yeah, but that, systematic separation of control over capital. Yeah, but the the advisor encouraging you, the custodian, Wall Street, they're not going to encourage you to consider those things. No, no, I mean, I get it, and uh, yeah, so I get, but and then I have, so I have clients who have made the transition. Mm-hmm. They went from participated in, and the ones who get there quickest are the ones who confess soonest, right? It's it's <laughs> OMG, this is I'm out, I'm I'm mad, I'm gonna quit, and just like you say, everybody's situation is different. We go, you know, I'm not the investment advisor. Go go get the, you know, go to the, you know, take the steel man approach. Go to the most clever, high profile, high prestige, high status investment advisor you can afford and get there, get the flashy, you know, uh, quantitative analysis, get the best disagreeing, contrasting opinion out there. Go get that and then come back and then reevaluate with that in mind. I still think IBC is better. Of course, it's a, it's a, it's not even an alternative. It's just, a, I mean, it is in some sense, but it's it's an alternative at a different level of analysis. Right? It's an alternative in the narrative. It's a right? fundamentally because, different paradigm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, Completely. And it's such yeah. a, like in talking with the small business owner or the, you know, the small time local investor, in contrast to what you get on CNBC and these financial podcasts now where celebrities are starting to have their own little, you know, alternative media podcast it's like you know this this mythology of the vc world where you talk about these numbers with a whole bunch of zeros and and you there there are so many different types of financial experiences for people out there and for the individual who's earning the 1099 or the w2 or even as an investor and you know they're making some income and they they want to do something with the money they make that they don't spend. You know, the the idea that and that the investment opportunity is something that is marketed to you versus what people experience what the, what the small business owner for instance experiences in his own life where he's got to go take the hard-earned retained earnings and deploy strategically. Like the amount the difference in the amount of preparation and investigation and supervision and follow-up and that goes on in the two worlds is night and day, right? Yeah. The the businessman is going to watch that money like a hawk and deploy it carefully and reluctantly and in risk averse fashion. Whereas in this tax qualified money, oh it's, oh, it's like employer match. Yeah, here, go take it. You know, no forethought. Just, oh, that's what we do. That's what everyone's doing. It's 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 almost thoughtless. Right? And and the 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 criticism or investigation is discouraged. It's it's papered over with all the marketing. I, I love that thoughtless. It's it's the uh, path of least resistance whenever you have a qualified plan available, profit sharing or whatever it may be, you have to opt out of that as an employee. Now, back in the day, you had to opt into it. 
then you now you have to opt out of it and then they have target date funds you don't even just set it and forget it leave it alone wake up in 30 years you'll be the millionaire you'll be in a lower tax bracket which that may be true for some you may be in a lower tax bracket oh but then we can have the conversation about rate versus volume so the 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 context right and the words that are used from that world don't translate one for one in the world of properly structured life insurance practicing the infinite banking concept where you're controlling the banking function and whether you're a a small business person as you speak of um, or the average household you look at the cost of finance you look at the cost of capital you look at what the bank is earning the third party lender i'm not even trying to demonize your local banker at all i mean heck the local banks around he here know enough to understand in the first place i mean you can go get three and a half four four and a half percent uh you know on these money market i mean so i'm just saying that there's sometimes maybe i'd rather take a four percent return than have the uh hypothetical seven eight nine or ten percent return every situation is different but the narrative the language that is used in that world the current construct of retirement planning retirement qualified plans saving versus investing does not translate into the infinite banking world right so when you move away from that and work through all the friction right that's a just opposed i mean i mean it's an avalanche just, it's an avalanche that that is is perpetrated upon you I always talk about the unsuspecting american public you know because we're all just working we want to have a good life we want to have a good life for our family maybe set the next generation up you know better than we have or were uh better than we are um okay but what does that look like when it comes to the infinite banking concept right completely different new language every industry has its own language all words absolutely have meaning and words don't translate maybe concepts don't translate as well they they do in the financial world predominantly concepts but when you leave out the banking function i mean that's a whole nother the gaping language. hole. It, it's 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 missing, yeah. right? And so when you discover that there may be something different, and maybe infinite banking is uh, becoming your own banker is uh, worth investigating. I mean, you've got to go through that friction. You're already now you've gone against the grain. Now you're like digging in deep, really going against the mm-hmm. grain. Now then. Uh, when you said go find that best analysis that's opposite well look there's you've written articles uh addressing other articles that are that hate the infinite banking concept it's out there you can go find the noise right that this is the worst thing ever well go educate yourself on that right um but before you write checks my opinion Mm. go ahead and thoroughly investigate the infinite banking concept learn some language Right. You don't have to be a life insurance expert, but you might ought to work with one or somebody that's competent. You know, learn their vocabulary. What are what are we talking about when we're talking about cash value or rates of return and and all of the different language, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just saying you go from going against the grain, that friction, then you discover you want to do something different. And if you land upon the infinite banking concept, a whole nother set of uh, friction right yeah. going to the source is a great way to sort that all out you know becoming your own bankers like the decoder lenses but one thing you said you know 
and this kind of irritates me too, is that the whole conventional financial planning retirement approach is based in part on that assumption that or when you're older, you're going to be in a lower tax bracket. It's like, what are you telling me? That when I'm older, maybe physically less able, maybe health is deteriorating, that I'm going to plan to have less That's cash what I flow? Want. Yeah. Like who the, I mean, who are you? Like, excuse me? Like what, where does that come from? And, and who woke up and said that that's an acceptable assumption that I'm going to plan for poverty. Who are you? How about no? That's how, about the, how about assumption. the plan is more like, how why about? not that? You know, how about, how about the only limit is between your ears, what you can do, what the result will be. I don't know. The future is unknown. You don't know either, right? You don't know what that, you can't look back at 30 years of market returns and, and, and all the disclosures are there, right? On the investment projections, past performance is no guarantee of future results. Um, it's like, how about you don't put a limit on me? How about I struggle with my own limits, right? How about that? And so then, okay, so we go through all this friction, you know, from one paradigm, and we're wading through the noise, learning some new language, you know, maybe talking with different people that have experience in the infinite banking world, right? And we're learning this new concept at the source, becoming your own banker, building a warehouse of wealth, R. Nelson Nash's first two books, understanding some of the changes in the industry at a fundamental level. You don't have to be a life insurance expert. But once you can see in your mind anyway that the infinite or the banking, the cost of banking, the actual ability to control the banking function may change your life. It may change the way you look at finance, period. And then you look at the end result of that and neither approach financially is going to occur without discipline. So this laissez-faire idea that you can just uh, forfeit, abandon your responsibility for your financial results should be um, eliminated from the picture. Yeah, it you know? just won't work. I mean, that's the <laughs> at the end of the day, it just won't work. Yeah, it's caught up in and and for me because. Like coming from the academic world where there is just this uh, a total blitz of all these very, you know, such and such thinker thinks this. Like in capital theory in particular, it's regarded as a black box. People give up on studying it because it's so hard to decipher and everybody's got their own little view and you got to spend time on it. And what academic has time anyway? And so my approach when it's like I have never believed that things are just inherently impenetrably complex like at the end of the day for me if i want to understand something there's got to be core fundamental principles and maybe that's a faith-based faith-based belief if it is i don't care i believe there's a rational structure a logical structure to all things and that can be to some degree i have an imperfect perception and ability to conceive to conceptualize but i can get my arms around to some extent the fundamental organizing principles of whatever the domain of understanding is like i really believe that and in the context of finance in the context of the conventional uh, approach with tax qualified plans to me it, it the the underlying rationale is so appalling like the the profession has 
totally failed to account for the losses due to the cost of dependency on the conventional banking system. They don't even address it. Failure number one. In the proposal they do have, which is some version of market correlated assets, they don't address the number one potential loss factor there, which is the business cycle. Failure number two. And then all of that is couched in terms of the idea that when I'm old, I'm going to be poor. Failure number three. Uh, and, and all of it is in this context of it's best for you to give up control over capital. Here, put your capital over here with me. You don't need it. Uh, and then, then and you then, don't even know what to do with it. And, yeah. And the logical or lack, the a logical, a theoretical mythology of. If you look over, you know, an averaged annualized rate of return is the same as an actual rate of return. I mean, that it's insulting. I find it, I find it intellectually insulting. And, and so when I say, oh, I'm in finance, or, you know, <laughs> then you got the other financial advisors. It's like, don't group me with that because <laughs> I no, like, no, I find it appalling. And so, uh, so I, when I go, have these conversations with people, I mean, I try to come back to first principles because it's, it's like the analysis paralysis idea. You can get lost in all the details all yep. you want for as yep. long as you want. Yep. And if you're looking for resistance, you can find it. You want confirmation to stay doing what you're doing, you can get it. Yep. And oh, by the way, I'm not digging you out. Okay, it's not the lifeguard's job to come and drag you kicking and screaming. Like they've got to approach you ready for your defensive action because you could drown the lifeguard. Sure. Right. So it's this is not, you know, I'm not going to do it for you. This isn't going to be a persuade me or convince me. Oh, when I get those from some client, you know, I'm <laughs> don't, gonna, you don't have to sell me. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I get this one. You know, my wife doesn't or my husband doesn't understand quite that much, but we're going to do a call. Maybe you could convince him. Yeah. No. no. How about no? How about we're done? How about go get Nelson? I mean, it's nothing personal. It sounds personal because I'm rough in this way, but it's like, I am not interested in that. You shouldn't be either. I'm not doing you any favors. I'm not doing anybody any kind of favor. You're not doing yourself a favor by looking to be persuaded. Right? There's got to be some independent desire to go and investigate and discover the underlying principles at work here. It's the cost of dependency on third-party capital. It's the business cycle. It's assumptions those, about what's going to go on late in life. Those fundamental failures of the current narrative right, are inherent to the current narrative. Yeah. Right. I'm going to be poor. I'm going to I'm going to abdicate my responsibility, you know, finance in general, and then I'm going to acquiesce to your limitations. I can only contribute X number of dollars. I can only have access through loans to a limited amount, and the loan repayment is going to be a specified duration with a specified interest rate that you have no choice of. You know, you can't exceed that. Ta- yeah, tax qualified plant margin. None of that solves for the banking function. No, you, no. you have no ownership in any of that. All of that is owned. You would happen to have certain contingent rights to do some things, like for a to- for the time being, right? Because all those rules can change. Oh, I mean, what? Yeah. It, it, so it's like, to my mind, it's like, what degree of quantitative uh, mental gymnastics would you need to see to justify all that? I don't have to do any because everybody else is doing it and it's so easy for me. Just deduct from my, I'm not going to see the money. I don't have the discipline to save anyway. So I'm saving here. No, you're not saving there. It's the path of least resistance, yeah. right? But then you go from just in 
introducing being exposed to the idea that you can control the banking function and then understanding what that means in terms of action and responsibility, you know, it's recognizing that, you know, I made a mistake previously. I've abdicated my the banking function in my life to these third-party lenders who hate your guts. I'm not talking about the local guy, right? Wait, wait. You, you want a $20 million loan? Well, give us two years of tax return signed off by your CPA that is uh, uh, right under or above his disclosure that these numbers are not, they're only relied upon, you know, because the consumer, the client gave me the numbers. I'm not validating any of them. Okay. And then, uh, uh, what did I say? $20 million loan? Oh, well, you better have $30 million in assets. So over collateralized. Okay. Complete control. And then that note's callable. What? Or accelerated. Use whatever terminology you want. And then they're going to charge you interest on money that didn't exist. I mean, yeah, what could possibly go wrong with that? Yeah, banking is evil. Yeah. Period. So, yeah. So, underneath all of that is the idea of scale. There are all these principle conceptual problems, but then in practice, if you also add scale on top of it, it all gets worse. <laughs> it all gets worse. Well, if it's bad and you're scaling, that's that's a result. <laughs> you just get more of it. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, but look, so then you're exposed to this idea of banking, and then what does that mean? Controlling the banking function, you know, in in terms of human action, my responsibility, the discipline that's required of me right now and in the future. Oh, and it's like, well, if you're talking about infinite banking concept, it comes with a premium. I got to pay a premium for a long time period. Now, wait a minute. If you've got a premium due versus the opportunity to make an investment, quote unquote, or a contribution, which would have more urgency in you and the way you personally practice your finance. Can't oh, and let's call that bad, right? Okay. Well, and then numerically, what does that mean to me? If we all want the same things, we want to have a happy life, a comfortable life. We want to set the next generation up better than we were. We want to enjoy passive income in retirement or whatever it is we're going to do and we want to do. Right. You compare controlling the banking function over any kind of a time period to the alternatives. Right. And then see who wins. Well, you've got to go through you've got to go through one narrative. You got to go away from that narrative into another narrative that has plenty of noise. The infinite banking concept, infinite banking, uh, becoming your own banker and all the bastardizations that are out there much of which is noise, in my opinion, you've got to go through the noise. It's almost like running a gauntlet, you know, being yeah. beat into a gang, you know, and, and then it's like, okay, once you get past that and you see what's going on, you understand what's going on and what the banking, controlling the banking function could do with life insurance for you and your family, then it's like, I don't care. It gets to that point. Go lose money. Go go have uh, Uncle Guido, the third-party lenders, uh, seize your assets. Call a note. Accelerate a loan. You, you cough it up. You're selling assets at bargain basement, firehouse, fire sale prices uh, to stay out of jail or stay out of bankruptcy or stay out of whatever the result of all that's going to be. You do that a couple of times, and by God, That'll knock some noise off. That'll help you see what's really going on and then translate that into infinite banking. You mean I can pay that kind of premium? 
and I have that kind of flexibility to go up and down. Wait, and I can spend this much money value. You know, I can I can access that. I can control that, and leave something tax free to the next generation. Yeah, yeah. You've, you've said a number of times, and we've said, and I, I don't do a, a good enough job of explaining this because as we talked about before we turn the cameras on once we get to an illustration review and in an advisory process and the client looks at an illustration after we've gone through all this education and sees what the results are in terms of cash value growth it's always 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 a surprise and a good surprise and i'm glad that it's a good surprise but i wish it was good without being so surprising right because at the end of the day in the life of a dividend paying whole life contract, the way we build them, which is a major caveat, but in the... I don't even want to be thrown in with everybody who says they practice infinite banking. I know. I get it. That's what I'm banker. saying. The way that I learned to build contracts from you, right? So the way we build policies, uh, which means the, the which affects the way cash value grows over time and for the amount of time it does grow in the way it grows. Like if one could just imagine having an asset into which you could pay X number of dollars where the value of the asset as a result of your payment was going to increase by more than what you paid in. And that every year you did that, the increase in the value in that year would be greater than it was in the prior year. And if you could do that over and over again, for the rest of your life. As long as possible. As long as possible. Who wouldn't want that? You know, and, and why? And it's, it's never explained that way. It's always, you know, cash value day one, blah, blah, blah. The idea that I'm going to create this system where I've got the contractual right to make a payment, to cause the value of something that I own, the value that I can borrow against post-tax to use for what I want, when I want, to repay if and when I want, to rinse and repeat over and over again. I'm going to build out that contractual capacity and so that I can do it for as long as possible to as high a magnitude as possible. Like the, what that looks like. I mean, imagine living in that world. I'm trying <laughs> I mean, and and we wonder why and i it all, virtually always maybe not always but gets to that point you know we look at cash value growth year 10 year 15 year 20 whatever and we see this multiplier effect you know cash value growth in a given year is two times the premium paid in what other asset does somebody own where that happens i mean it's, it's a foreign concept and so we always get to the point it's like yeah add a zero you know this is why, and I tell people, this is why people who do this, the, for for those for whom it's clicked, we look back and say, gosh, I wish those premiums were higher. Every time, myself included, I started way too small. I'm embarrassed at how small I started. But it's a long time ago, and I've learned a lot since then. Anyway, I, so I just want to bring, <laughs> I want to bring all this back to where we started and looking at where we are in the economy today and what's going on with the money supply and with the yield curve inversion and with the likelihood of significant economic correction. And maybe you've got significant accumulated assets in something that's market correlated. Maybe it's tax qualified. Maybe it's not. Maybe you're concerned about what's going to go on this time in this round of correction. You know, 
my, maybe some of my closing ideas here is that this is a feature. It is a business cycle. It is not a business <coughs> event. This is something that will recur. This is going to happen again. Business cycles are a consequence of fractional reserve banking. Fractional reserve banking isn't going anywhere, not in the near term, at least. Uh, I've uh, got crypto, brah. Great, good, great. Yeah, go borrow against it and you know, take control of the banking function with your crypto. Anyway, um, you know, this is this is nothing new. It's just the most recent iteration. Um, what goes on in the world of IBC and inside a dividend-paying whole life contract is categorically distinct from what's going on inside of an investment plan or investment program, be it tax qualified or not. There are frictions, so to speak, in unwinding oneself theoretically and conceptually from the, the this uh, infatuation, this indoctrination with indoctrination. Con with conventional financial planning. You got it. You know, you'll get out of that, or you won't, at whatever pace you will or not. Um, there, it's not going to be parity. It's not going to be dollar for dollar. You're not going to drag and drop. You know, it's fruit of the poisonous tree. You're not going to take this stuff you think you have, which you don't. The, the the published account value on the tax qualified plan bears little to no relationship with the actual amount of money you could have in a checking account once you get it out, however fast you're going to get it out, if you get it out. So there's going to be loss. There's going to be cost. The costs are baked in. The problems are baked in. That's how it was sold. It's a tax deferral, not a tax elimination. The penalties were there at the beginning. Uh, all this was known. There were going to be costs. You knew there were going to be costs, or at least somebody did. There's Getting out is never fun, obviously. Uh, the revelation of... Uh, having engaged with the lie is never fun, uh, but it is what it is. And there's an opportunity to do differently and to do better. And I'm critical, like I said earlier, you know, I didn't grow up in that, uh, in that sort of mindset. So my tolerance for it is proportionately lower. My patience for it is lower. Um, not an investment planner. You know, I tell everybody who's got tax qualified money they're thinking or any kind of market correlated money they're thinking of using to pay a premium. You need to go talk to your securities person. You need to go get the best justification to not do this possible uh, and then decide for yourself what you want to do because I can't advise you on it. Um, but once you do, if you do, uh, there's a whole other world that awaits and it doesn't have anything to do with planning for poverty. It doesn't have anything to do with encouraging the abdication of the responsibility for controlling capital. It embraces the problem of the business cycle. It embraces the fact that the cost of conventional lending is atrocious. Right? It embrace, IBC embraces all of those realities and says you should be in a position of ownership and control in relation to all of that. Uh, and I think what comes out of it uh, might be pretty powerful. And like you said earlier, could really change your life. You know, <clears throat> uh, I appreciate that. And I believe simplicity is a, brev uh, is a virtue. I believe brevity is a virtue, but not at the sacrifice of understanding, right? I'm never, ever going to dumb things down, quote unquote. That's an insult to the consumer, my opinion. And not brevity, not to the point where there's omission 
of pertinent facts, right? I'm not talking about that, but I am talking about simplicity. As I age, I mean, do I want 47 accounts? Maybe if they're 47 life insurance policies, possibly. <laughs> but um, the focus is switches, right? From going from one narrative to another narrative, controlling the banking function. You must have capital and you must have access to capital to control the banking function. And if we look at banking simplistically, movement of money, withdrawals, deposits, loans, loan repayments, the movement of money, and then stockpiling money to be able to perform the banking function and be able to control the banking function, it all takes capital, right? And when you're building capital somewhere where you're limiting your control or limiting your access to that capital, somebody else is a gatekeeper, right? I mean, you're limiting your access to that capital. And then when you're taking income in retirement, that's a cash flow. That's a movement of money, right? So, um, and then in the financial world, I want to say that the focus is almost always on accumulating money, accumulating value. Not always. I mean, here lately, it's become a buzzword, the accumulation phase, the distribution phase, you know, someone's life, accumulating money for retirement, distributing that money throughout retirement. Um, and when you look at going from one narrative to another, the the language is rate of return, rate of return, rate of return. And all of the assumptions that have to occur to make me feel good about practicing um, building capital in a qualified retirement plan, I'm going to assume a future tax rate. I'm going to assume a future, quote unquote, retirement date. I'm going to assume a retirement duration. All, and I'm going to assume rates of return during the accumulation, during the distribution, and I'm going to assume all of that. So there, it's wrought with assumptions, and but I got to work through them. I'm going to assume that you have your best interest in mind, and I'm going to be there managing your account when the ups and downs. I'm going to buy and sell at the proper times. So the investment advisors, a market timer, no, they're not. They're buying portfolios. Okay. Um, but then you're going to endure the business cycle through that whole time period. So whenever you pick in, in the financial world, when you get down to a duration, like I, we're only going to talk about the last 20 years or the next 10 years or the next 20 years. I mean, the durations, in my opinion, are cherry picked, right? When they're presented to the consumer, it's like this did X number of dollars you know, or X rate of return over this particular duration. I'm going to go back this far and I'm going to project that out. Or I'm going to go back, you know, this far and take three different uh, experiences and a high market rate of return, average market rate of return, a low market rate of return. And I'm going to project one of them too. And I'm going to use a Monte Carlo system, you know, to do that. And then you have a probability of, of uh, not running out of money. It's, all of that language and even doesn't transfer into this different paradigm of controlling the banking function. My, my point that I want to make here 
is number one, capital accumulation is what we should all focus on. The opportunities will present themselves, getting lost in the different portfolios that you want to hold, cryptocurrency, the different asset classes. It's capital accumulation. That is a worthy activity alone. And then to do that, when you talk about the long properly built policies, you know, the capital accumulation over a long duration, you've got to get past the first three or four years of loss of liquidity with life insurance. You've got to be able to understand enough of the noise to not focus on that. Or uh, you've got to understand enough to know what might happen when illustrations are built for you to have cash on cash in year one, two, three, or four, or five, or whatever it is. And because you can't assume what goes beyond that illustration. Those illustrations, in my opinion, are contorted and they're manipulated, right? To get the consumer to say yes, it negates what actually occurs in the future, in my opinion, and it's not good. So I know you're hungry, but look, capital accumulation, capital, 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 capital. It's a worthy focus. Very good. Uh, thanks for letting me squeeze that off before you fall yeah. out of your chair. You're for, welcome. You know, <clears throat> thanks for listening. Y'all have fun. I had fun. Thank you for joining us on the Banking with Life podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, make sure to like and subscribe and click on that little notification bell. Otherwise, join us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher for weekly content. 